Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Sleep, it's essential as food, water, the air we breathe, and yet many of us have such difficulties getting the quality sleep we need to function well, to just feel good, not crummy, focused, not cranky or fatigued when we're awake. You know the feeling. We've all been through it after a bad night's sleep, just slogging your way through a day with a foggy brain. Today, we want to explore sleep and hopefully solutions, um, some unconventional ones to insomnia, if you suffer from that. My guest this entire hour is Eric Prather. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. He co-directs there the Aging Metabolism and Emotion Center. He's also a clinical sleep psychologist at the uh, University of California, San Francisco Insomnia Clinic. That's where he uh, treats patients who have insomnia. He has a new book. It's titled The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. And in this book, he shares strategies uh, that have helped his sleep-deprived patients. Um, Eric Prather, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Want to reach out to our listeners this hour? Share your question or sleep problem this hour. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Or River to River at iowapublicradio.org, our email. Eric, I've I've really enjoyed uh, your—it's a compact book, a very practical guide to getting better sleep. I appreciate that you can read it in an afternoon or just jump to a part that you like to find a solution for or explore some sleep science. So uh, very nice with that. Let's—before we get to some of the very interesting and unconventional solutions you have for better sleep, what is your first piece of advice for someone struggling with sleep? You know, I mean, I think when people are struggling with sleep, it really is first, you know, it's normal. It's normal to have a bad night of sleep, right? I mean, we kind of fluctuate. And one of the challenges that can occur when people do a bad night of sleep is they start kind of assuming that kind of sleep is lost for them, right? And so I think first is, is around kind of how chronic is this problem? Because the treatments are certainly different if it's kind of a bad night of sleep that's a one-off because you have stress in your life where it might be really kind of reasonable to have that bad night of sleep? Or is it something that's happening night after night after night? And is there anything that's explaining that? I mean, there's lots of things that can drive kind of poor nights of sleep, and the solutions are different. Yeah. Well, well let's, let's take those two instances. Certainly, we, when we have a stressor in our life, um, a new job, something not well going at the job, maybe with a family member, something like that, we can identify a stressor. And we say, okay, that's logical. But let's take the other case, because I think that's most frustrating, speaking from experience myself, and I'll, I'll speak for listeners for sure, when you are just awake and you're you're kind of going surveying your mind, saying, "Am I worried about something? Um, I should be getting better sleep. I'm not sleepy. What's going on? Let's take that road. What do you do in that case?" Yeah, I mean that can be really challenging. And you know, I will say that you know, 30 percent of the population reports that kind of thing. So that's like nearly 100 million individuals in the U.S. And so 
you know, it, it, it can really wear away at you at your day to day and, and kind of produce all the things that you're, you're mentioning. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about insomnia is, you know, it always tends to start with like a good reason, but the, the behavioral changes that we make and uh, can really feed that. They perpetuate that experience of insomnia. So, so the, the, the treatment that we do in our clinic, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, really tries to, to, to correct those behavioral changes to help sleep get back to what it, what it does more naturally. Now, when people wake up in the middle of the night and their, their mind is kind of racing and, it, and when it switches to this feeling of like worrying about the fact that you're not sleeping, Right, that distress mm-hmm. about like, oh no, I'm not sleeping. What's it going to be like the next day? That's really yes. when, when we want to intervene. And one of the ways that we do that is to first, you really want to get yourself out of the bed. And this is really hard to convince people to do, right? I mean, you're already awake. You don't want to make it go on any longer. But what happens if that's happening chronically for people, it actually really changes our relationship with the bed. The bed itself is a really important trigger to bring on sleepiness. And, you know, when people don't have sleep problems, they get in bed, and the, the bed, because of that strong relationship, can act like kind of like a hammer. It just kind of takes you down and lets your body relax. But when you have mm-hmm. night after night of waking up in the middle of the night and your brain is really active, um, you know, it could be that you're fracturing that relationship, and we need to repair it. Okay, but join us with your sleep question, your sleep problem. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Eric Prather Prather is with us, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. His new book, The Sleep Prescription: Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best uh, Rest. Well, I've been all over the map, as so many of our listeners have been, when we have trouble sleeping. You know, that is a key question: when to get up instead of staying in bed, because I've had instances where I was glad I stayed in bed because I feel that while I'm not in a a deep, perhaps a non-REM sleep, I'm getting some sort of rest, charging the battery, however you want to talk it. And then there are other times when I was glad I got up and maybe had a cup of herbal tea or something like that. Dig into that a little bit more because it's important not only uh, to say, well, let's get up out of bed, but the activity you choose after you do get up, right? Absolutely. I, I, think, I think you're right about both kind of what you do and the timing, right, of when you do it. So, you know, and I think some of it gets to how sleep is structured, right? So, and, and so I just want to mention that for a moment. So, you know, when you fall asleep, um, you know, typically we spend the first half of our night is disproportionately deep sleep. But then that kind of drains out throughout the night. And so the second half of the night of, of our night of sleep is, is tends to be lighter and it tends to be made up of more kind of dreaming sleep or what we call rapid eye movement sleep. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you wake up in the early hours, kind of really close to bedtime or wake time, right? So like an hour before you wanted to wake up, it, it may not be kind of the best plan to kind of try to get out of bed, do something quiet until you feel sleepy again, and then get back in bed to try to get a little bit more of that sleep, just because you've drained out so much of that sleep already. And one of the things that kind of drives our experience for sleeping is what's called our homeostatic sleep drive. But when you get kind of like seven hours in or six hours in, a lot of that is kind of drained out. And so, you know, it does make a lot of sense to actually maybe just rest. Um, We know that rest is restorative. Oftentimes people kind of go in and out of, of kind of light sleep. And all of that is kind of, you know, value added to our day. 
Now, if it's in the middle of the night or certainly at the beginning of the night where you kind of get, it back, get in bed and, and you just mm. can't sleep, um, it's, it's certainly worth uh, getting out of bed um, and doing something quiet. And so usually our, our rule of thumb is like, you know, if you get in bed and, or you wake up in the middle of the night and you try to get back to sleep and it's been like 20 minutes or so, um, you know, you, you, you might start kind of wondering kind of like what's, what's going on. Your mind start getting a little uh, worried about what's, what's, what's happening in your life. Either you're worrying about tomorrow, you're thinking about things you wish you had done differently, so ruminating. You, you do want to remove yourself from this situation. That doesn't mean turn on all the lights. It doesn't mean kind of, you know, fire up your computer and start tackling right. your email. It means kind of doing something quiet and relaxing. But the things that you do are, are often kind of personal. Like I used to always recommend reading, right? That was like, for me, if I, you know, I'm two pages in and I'm, I'm ready to, to, to kind of uh, spend the rest of the night asleep. But for other people, I found that, you know, they love reading so much that it's actually really engaging for their brain. <laughs> and so, you know, they, I, I have patients that are, you know, they're, I'm like, oh, how's your sleep over the last week? And they're like, well, I'm not getting any more sleep, but you won't believe how many books I'm reading. And so, you know, in that case, it really kind of undermines the, the plan. And so, so, you know, finding the thing that works for you that's relaxing for you. So that's often things like, you know, uh, listening to music, um, reading, uh, sometimes kind of watching television that you've seen before that you don't need to wait to see what happens. All of those things can distract the mind and kind of calm you down to allow you to get back to sleep. And so when you start to feel those sleepy cues again, you want to get yeah. back in bed and give it another try. For certain, for, for certain sleep problems and people, would you say audiobooks are fine uh, too, because it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't there research that, you know, let's say you, you put your sleep timer on your audiobook, it's going to go out in 15 minutes, uh, and, and then it continues on after you drift out to sleep. But you, your brain is still uh, aware of that narrator in the book after you fall asleep, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Yeah, I mean, like, so audiobooks seem to to work well for some people. I mean, I think it depends on the the type of audiobook. I mean, you know, uh, um, true crime audiobooks maybe not the the thing that you want to do to try to uh, get get a good night rest. But you know, certainly other ones. And the and the narrator, of course, matters. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think you also bring up another important point that our brain is always listening, right? I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things in the sleep science that you know even when people are sleeping. Uh, you can, you know, and, and kind of their sensory, uh, you know, all their senses are kind of, you know, turned down a bit. But if you go and you kind of say their name right by their ear, mo- more often than not, they'll perk up, right? Because that's because our brain is kind of wired to not be on or off um, on sleep. In fact, our brain is really active when we're sleeping, but also kind of can pick up on some of those salient cues in the environment that are important for survival. Right, yeah. New parents know the baby cry. <laughs> They're wired. Right. Uh, mothers are wired especially to respond to that for sure. Let's go to our uh, first caller. Uh, if you'd like to join us with your sleep question, your sleep problem, we'll see what uh, Eric Prather has to say about it. Uh, Lisa is with us in Des Moines. Welcome to the program, Lisa. Hi. Well, my hey, question is, hey, how are you? Good. Um, I was calling <laughs> calling about restless legs. I've had those, like, on and off, but usually it only lasts, like, a few days. Like, for the last, I'd say, like, four or five months, I, I've had them every single night. And so I've had to start taking Ropinerol just so I can sleep at night. And I'm, like, wondering if there's something else I can do. I don't want to be on medicine forever, but I can't seem to sleep without it. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And restless leg syndrome is, is challenging. And so I, I certainly can understand how that can be frustrating for you. I mean, you know, the, the most common treatment are, you know, dopamine agonists like that you're taking. Um, you know, the only other thing that, uh, you know, seems to also go along with that is kind of low iron. And so I, I, I imagine that you've probably got that checked. Um, but, you know, if not, iron supplementation has been shown to be effective. From a behavioral standpoint, you know, it's really things like, uh, and, and a little of this is personal and kind of what, what works for you. I mean, it's like avoiding caffeine, um, you know, applying warm or cool packs to your legs if, if they feel particularly bad. Um, you know, sometimes wrapping them seems to be helpful for some people. Uh, having, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sufficient but not too much exercise so that your your legs aren't sore in addition to things, but keeping them moving, and then, you know, massage. And those those things in combination have been shown to be helpful for, for some people, but in some cases, uh, just because of uh, the nature of the, um, of the, you know, problem, these, these drugs seem to be kind of the most effective thing that people can do. Lisa in Des Moines, okay. good luck keeping your legs still at night, and we wish you a better rest. Thank you. To follow up, um, Eric, to follow up on that, you mentioned iron, perhaps an iron deficiency um, may be a, you know, a guide to a, a better, calmer legs. I hear a lot about vitamins and minerals lacking, perhaps having to do with sleep, uh, magnesium, for instance. Can you run through uh, what is your experience with uh, sleep problems actually being improved by just um, you know, making sure you get your vitamins and minerals? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think you know, the one you touch on is kind of the one that I hear the most about in our clinic, so magnesium. And, and you know, people have had some success um, in taking magnesium. Um, I think, you know, with, with the, what we do in our clinic, um, I don't think the we, we really focus on kind of the, the evidence base that we have available at present. And, you know, there, there is often kind of a lack of evidence for kind of supplementation, um, supple- use of supplements. And, and some of that is, is not due to the fact that they aren't helpful because they probably are in some cases, um, but we just don't have the randomized clinical trial data mm-hmm. to help inform our decisions compared to a placebo condition, right? And so, um, and, but, but it also speaks to the idea that, you know, from a, a psych- as a psychologist, you know, I'm, I'm certainly in favor of trying to do things without taking any of these uh, supplements, largely because um, there's always a concern about kind of what happens to your sleep if you don't have them. You know, some of them may be active ingredients that, that can be helping people sleep, but there's also often a psychological dependency that, um, you know, makes it so that, you know, even if it's not doing something, the fact that you don't have it actually creates this mm. level of distress that, it, you know, creates something called rebound insomnia, which is often kind of much worse than your sleep would have been had you not started taking those things at all. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, all of these things are, are potentially helpful. Um, magnesium probably taken chronically is not necessarily bad for you. The same could be said for melatonin. But, they, you know, but then it's, it's about kind of the dependency on them. And could you allow sleep to happen naturally if we kind of use some of these behavioral techniques that have been shown time and time again to be effective? Let's go to our next caller, Tall, uh, Charles in Cedar Rapids. Uh, welcome to the program, Charles. How's your sleep? Yes, thank you. Uh, my question is about uh, napping 
and the role yeah. of napping. And can napping actually help you uh, make up for sleep that you may lose at night? Okay, very good, yeah. Charles. This is very important because uh, you have, Eric, a lot about napping in this book, and it's uh, important to pay attention to how you nap. So uh, what do you have to tell Charles yeah. and others? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, napping, I, I, I think the it's important to say that, you know, napping in and of itself isn't a bad thing, right? I mean, it's been shown to kind of increase alertness. It has been linked to improvement in learning and memory because sleep plays such an important role in that. Um, but, you know, it also can be a symptom, right? I mean, why, why are you napping? Is it because you're uh, not getting the sleep you need during the night? Um, is there kind of an uh, insufficient opportunity for sleep during the night that's leaving you sleep deprived and, and needing to nap? Um, but, you know, in and of itself, is, it's not a bad thing. I think one thing to, to be mindful of is kind of how you nap. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with the duration of these naps. And so, you know, it seems like people get the best out of their nap if they keep them relatively short. So this is, you know, within, you know, 20, 20 minutes or so, um, kind of planned out. Most people take them in the early afternoon, which kind of takes advantage of the, or it helps fight off some of the, the circadian dip that we have, kind of that siesta mm -hmm. time. Um, but if you go too long in your nap, it will, uh, you, have, you run the risk of kind of dipping into deep sleep, right? Kind of that slow wave sleep that, um, you know, is really important to have. But when you try to come out of the nap, you just feel like, you know, you feel terrible. You feel worse than you did when before you had to take it, right? And I think most of us know that experience. And that's called sleep inertia. And so it's really hard to shake off. So, you know, you just have to be mindful about when you take it um, and, and the reason why you're taking it. I think the truth is that uh, we can only make so much sleep, right? So uh, if, if you take a nap in the, in the afternoon, the expectation shouldn't be that you sleep the same amount as you would had you not taken it at night. So it's kind of like snacking before dinner, right? And so oh. your appetite for sleep just isn't going to be the same. And that's okay. You just need to know that going into it so that you don't get distressed by the fact that you're just, your sleep is different at night. Okay, and those really short naps, 20 minutes or, or so or, or less, not getting into the deep sleep, what is happening? I've had naps, actually I can do this fairly regularly, naps even less than 10 minutes. Close my eyes and something happens in my brain that I open my eyes literally a few minutes later and feel refreshed, like my brain has been squeegeed a, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Things are crisper. Yeah, what's going yeah. on? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, sleep, sleep is magical like that. Right. I mean, and, and, and I, I would love to say that, oh, well, you know, this leads to this, that leads to this. But, we, you know, we're still really kind of chipping away at the, the underlying sleep science. We, we still are, don't have a full understanding of exactly why we sleep, let alone kind of how that makes us feel refreshed. But absolutely, you know, sometimes that can be the, the ticket for you. And, and it really does have to do with just kind of kind of draining out some of that sleepiness that is built up, um, you know, during the day. And that can just increase your, your level of alertness that can help you kind of get on and, 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 and feel better. And so, you know, that's, that's great. And, and, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, businesses around the country and around the world that allow people to kind of institute these naps just because of the boost in productivity that might happen as a consequence. Okay, we have a, just a few minutes before we go to break. I think we have time, though, to, to entertain John's question. John in Cedar Falls, welcome to the program. Oh, great. Thanks for taking my call. So I've usually had a really tough time falling asleep, and recently I stumbled across uh, some videos on YouTube that are, uh, you know, 50 megahertz, 235 megahertz, natural rhythm, deep sleep, uh, sound waves. 
you know, don't don't listen to while you're driving type advertisements. And <laughs> they seem to be helping because, you know, they, they relax my mind, I guess. Uh, is there any science behind uh, frequency and the ability to put you at ease and put you to sleep? That's a great, it's a great question, John. And, and certainly kind of one of the areas that is kind of exploding in the, the, the sleep science world, because, um, you know, whether it's kind of frequency of noise, so, you know, white noise versus brown noise versus pink noise, um, or kind of the, the, the ability for some of these um, sounds to kind of entrain your, your sleep slow wave oscillations in your brain, um, they do in some cases seem to be effective. Now, it, it certainly comes with some caveats. It definitely doesn't work for everyone. In some instances, you know, if they're playing throughout the night, they actually can wake people up, right? But, you know, there are, you know, startup companies around the country and some academic research centers that are testing these things in the laboratory and finding some kind of interesting effects. I mean, one that I think is particularly interesting is in the context of cognition. So we know that sleep is critical for cognition. We think that slow wave oscillations are really important for that. And with auditory stimulation in kind of small trials, they found that, you know, for people that for whom it works for, where they can actually entrain these slow wave oscillations, they can actually improve someone's cognition acutely. So it really speaks to this idea of like, you know, could this be a potential um, intervention for folks who may be at risk for developing neurodegenerative disease or something like that? And I mean, it's really early on in the science. I will say there is some kind of preliminary intriguing information. I can't speak to the to the YouTube videos that you found, but um, there is, you know, a little bit of science there, um, and I, my expectation is that'll grow over time. Mm-hmm. John, excellent question. Thank, Thank you. you. We wish you the best of sleep uh, in Cedar Falls. Um, real quick, but boy, we go to break in in just over a minute, Eric. Um, uh, talk a little bit bit more about. You, you say there's so much we don't know. If we had like a pie chart, I mean, we understand how the heart works. We understand how other organs, but the brain. <laughs> undiscovered territory, a lot of it up there. If we had a pie chart, would you guess how much of that pie chart is known if it's just the brain, um, knowledge about the brain and sleep? Uh, oh, my gosh. That is a, that's a really, really hard one. I mean, I think it's, it kind of speaks to, because we just don't know when the part, pie chart, like how big is this pie chart that we have because you know, we continue to make these discoveries, and so we think we're at the end, and then we're like, oh, wow, there's a All right, okay. We didn't even know that was there. So, okay, we don't, know, we don't know how big the universe is in, in that case, in the, in our, in between our head, between our ears Lots there. Lots to do. Lots to do. Okay, Eric, if you would stand by, we'd love to have you back in the second half hour. Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry, behavioral sciences at UC San Francisco. Sleep Prescription, his book, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. When we come back, I want to ask Eric more about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. You've heard the acronym probably CBTI. Very effective. We'll find out why when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today, focusing on sleep, Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. He's a co-director of their Aging Metabolism and Emotions Center and a sleep psychologist at uh, the university's Insomnia Clinic. So he has had a lot of um, uh, experience uh, treating uh, patients, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, sleep problems. If you'd like to join us, one 780 The Sleep Prescription, his book, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Or you can email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, Eric, uh, we have so much in this book we won't get to uh, this half hour or this hour, but we wanted to dive into some unconventional um, remedies that you may have for sleep problems. But before we do that, I wanted to have you give us a quick outline for those not familiar with, it goes by the acronym CBTI, Co- Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. In a nutshell, what is it and, and what can it mean for someone who goes through it? It's, it's, it's the, the, the most effective uh, treatment, isn't it, uh, f- rather than reaching for a, a pill, for instance? Yeah, uh, CBTI, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, is kind of well-recognized as the first-line treatment for insomnia, but unfortunately it rarely is. Often people um, end up getting prescription medication or taking sleep aids. But, you know, basically it, it really works on the kind of the drivers of how we sleep naturally so um, and uses behavioral approaches to try to kind of snap those things back into place. What happens with insomnia is, you know, there's this distress, this feeling that they're chasing sleep, that sleep has become really unpredictable. And what happens is individuals make kind of behavioral choices that in the, sh- in the short term or in the moment make tons of sense, like, you know, um, going to bed really early because they don't know when sleep's going to happen or kind of shifting their wake time because they had a really bad night and they want to make up on that sleep or napping during the day or kind of tossing and turning in bed because they don't want to get out of bed. Those types of things um, make sense because, you know, they really want that sleep, but it actually in the long term undermines how sleep works. And so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia really addresses those and kind of puts parameters in place to allow the body to do what it does, what it wants to do, which is kind of sleep naturally. You know, sleep is something that people never even wonder how it works until it stops. But then people come real, become very hyper-focused on it, and that actually is part of the problem. And so it, like other CBT programs, we also uh, address those cognitions, those kind of distressing thoughts or uh, catastrophizing about what it means to get a bad night's sleep. Because people with insomnia actually do a lot of mental effort thinking about how they're going to sleep tonight or what it means that they don't sleep. And so we try to provide strategies so that they can take their mind off it. They can let it happen because sleep isn't something that you make happen. It's something that comes to you. Mm-hmm. Before we go back to our callers, let's talk about some of the unconventional remedies, solutions that may help some people here. Um, the <laughs> how to beat uh, that I, need for afternoon I, caffeine. Uh, you say, stick your head in a freezer. Now, this will need some explanation. It doesn't sound <laughs> logical. <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to go with that one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, so, so, I mean, you know, we all have kind of these afternoon doldrums we're kind of dragging right and so that and that's part of partly to do with our kind of circadian dip that we have kind of our alerting drops so we're trying to find things to like help us kind of snap out of that 
And one thing that we know is that cold exposure actually can be really alerting, right? And it can impact, you know, upregulate our sympathetic nervous system and can be novel enough that can get us through that, like, that low period. And so, you know, I can't ask everyone to do a polar plunge. I mean, it sounded like from, from the weather I heard uh, during the break that, you know, it's going to be getting colder. So maybe just going outside and doing a brisk walk would be sufficient. But, you know, that could be something that people can do so they don't reach for that caffeine. Because the challenge with caffeine is that it stays in your system for a really long time. In fact, the, the half-life of caffeine is about six hours. So if you end up having like a double espresso, um, you know, a, a pumpkin spice latte or some sort, that uh, at 4 p.m., you'll still have a single espresso in your system at 10 p.m., right? So we mm. want to figure out ways to, to not do that. And so that was, that was one that uh, came to mind as, as you know, a science-backed principle to, to, to try. But, of course, getting kind of some exercise outside, other, other tactics can also be effective. Eric, I've got another data point for you on this, because I actually tried out what you had in the book. Uh, we had, of course, recent election, and, and uh, I, I anchored the election night coverage for Iowa Public Radio, uh, needing to stay up till, till midnight. And so uh, I had an ice chest full of ice water in a, in a chair close in the studio and uh, submerged, uh, I think it was just past 11 p.m., submerged my arm up to say, the, uh, past the elbow, my entire arm and hand, in ice water. And it seemed to work. So that's a, a minor stressor. My brain is saying, wait a minute, uh, is being woken up because my arm is obviously very cold, and it wakes up my brain, too. That's great. That's great to hear. I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked for you. Um, uh, you know, it, it does seem, you know, these kind of natural things that are kind of part of our survival mode. You know, we, we're kind of built... Uh, to sleep, but we're also built to kind of go time without sleep because it's really adaptive. And, uh, and so, you know, we just need to find the way to kind of spark that uh, for ourselves sometimes. Okay. One of the other unconventional things, perhaps for some people, you say worry early. One of the tools, the power of worrying early uh, to calm an anxious mind. Tell us about yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think anybody who's had insomnia certainly knows the experience where you wake up in the middle of the night or right when you get in bed and your mind just kind of clicks on and it's never filled with like really great things in your life, right? You're not like, oh, rethinking this kind of the best experience. It's always these negative things that kind of eat at you, right? Like the worries about tomorrow or the concerns about yesterday and, and how you should have kind of acted differently and, and, you know, how could you undo those kind of things? And, and that's, that's not helpful, right? That's incompatible with sleeping, um, but it's, it's a natural tendency for the brain to kind of fill that space with that, that kind of thinking. And so one way in which we found to, to be effective in kind of preventing that, if not a little bit, is to actually schedule time for worrying. And this is, you know, really practical that you kind of like in your scheduling book say, okay, for this 15, 20 minutes of the day, whatever time you have, I'm going to just sit down and worry about these things. I'm going to write them down maybe. I'm going to dictate them or maybe even just think about them and, and kind of have that space giving yourself that grace to allow yourself to have that time. And then when you go to bed at night, one, you might have kind of gotten some of that out of your system, but also if you wake up and you find yourself doing that again, you can tell yourself like, look, no, I already scheduled this in my, in my time. I did this earlier today and I have it scheduled for tomorrow. And so I don't need to do this right now. And that seems to be effective if you do it over time in kind of training your brain to not default 
to that negative thinking. Mm -hmm. And we all know 2, 3, 4 in the morning is not the ideal time to solve problems. Your brain is just not <laughs> not up to the task. Let's yeah, go. I mean, most, most of the time I, I, I come up with solutions, and then I wake up in the morning, and I can't even remember what they were, right? I mean, it's oh, like it's, right. it's just un, you know, wasted time in that way. Okay, uh, let's go back to the phones. Eric Prather is with us of the University of California, uh, San Francisco, Sleep Pres The Sleep Prescription, his book. Uh, let's go to Gilbert in Algona. Hi, Gilbert. Hi. Uh, I've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, for which I use a CPAP, but they also think I have narcolepsy, for which they want to schedule me for an MSLT, I think it's called. And uh, I'm taking Xyrum right now for my insomnia. Do you think that the cognitive things will work with the, with the narcoleptic insomnia? Oh, so that's a, that's a great question. That's a great question, and I'm I'm glad that you're getting that checked out. And uh, an MSLT, a, a multiple sleep latency test, is exactly uh, one of the things that they they do to to try and diagnose that. Um, you know the and and also great job in, in using the CPAP. I mean, obstructive sleep apnea is probably one of the most undi undiagnosed, underdiagnosed uh, conditions that contributes to poor sleep and has a lot of. Uh, downstream negative health effects if it's not treated. So um, great for you on that. Um, you know, for the for um, for narcolepsy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is not uh, indicated for that, and there's no evidence to suggest that this will potentially help with it. Um, you know, narcolepsy has its own treatments, usually in th taking things like Xyrem, which is to help you kind of maintain alertness um, during the day and not kind of succumb to those sleep attacks that can happen. And so I would, I would mm -hmm. really uh, defer to your neurologist or your sleep medicine expert who is kind of, kind of tackling all of these things together. I can just say that CBTI is probably not the, the – it's not a standalone tool for that, though, you know, some of the um, recommendations in it might be helpful, um, but, it, but it's not kind of the first-line treatment for what you're talking about. Okay, okay, we hope that helps. Thank you. Gilbert, Gilbert mm -hmm. in Algona, thank you for calling in and sharing your sleep problem. Let's go to Josh, back to Des Moines. Hi, Josh. You've got a problem, I think. Uh, yeah, kind of. Well, I'm not really sure if it's something I should be worried about, I guess. Um, I can fall asleep really easily, no problem, but I wake up throughout the night probably three to four times, um, but it's only like for like a couple seconds. So I can fall back asleep, no problem. And so I'm just kind of wondering, is this something I should be concerned about? I, I don't wake up, like, tired yeah. or anything, but I yeah, just Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, wake you, up. you already – that was exactly going to be my question. I mean, how do you feel during the day? I usually feel good. I mean, I mean, some days are better or worse than others, but it's just I haven't had a solid through-the-night sleep for who knows how long. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you, you and me both. So, I mean, I, I think the uh, – <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the, the really important things to note is that, like, we actually wake up a lot during the night. We just don't remember it. Um, you know, we go through cycles of sleep. And so for some people, they wake up and they have no recollection, but then they fall, you know, they just roll over and fall back asleep. Sometimes we do have kind of a, 
you know, we, it makes like a little bit of a, a tick in our brain that like marks, okay, we woke up some, some number of times. But if it's really not affecting your uh, day-to-day functioning, like you're not feeling sleepy and tired all day and dragging, then it, it probably isn't an issue at all. In fact, that's really normative. And it, it happens more and more as we get older, unfortunately, because that's just like how the life course is. I think the only thing to be on guard for, and it doesn't sound like this is the case for you at all, is um, if you are feeling really tired, because one of the things that can happen is if you have, say, uh, if you're snoring a lot and your breathing is disrupted, that will also produce these same kind of awakenings. But usually you'll also feel just like terrible, despite the fact that you thought you slept most of the night. And so that would be something to check out. Sounds like it's not a case for you. So I'm happy for you. And it probably is just part of kind of your sleep architecture. Okay. All Josh right, and Des Moines. Radical news. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> put, put, put your mind at ease, it sounds like, uh, Josh in Des Moines. Thanks for the call. Here's an email from Corey in Davenport for you, uh, Eric. Uh, he writes, I don't have trouble sleeping, but my wife does. That has led us to have separate bedrooms so that I don't disturb her or vice versa. We keep the same bedtime routine, but we both sleep so differently. It's hard for us because I wake up refreshed and ready to go early in the morning, and she doesn't want to talk to anybody until around 10 a.m. because she's exhausted when she wakes up. What advice, what words do you have there, Eric? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I actually hear this a lot. And, and, and for some reason, I, I'm not sure why, but um, often when I see a person that has insomnia, their partner is like the best sleeper in the world. So that actually makes it really hard to, to you know, <laughs> for them to deal with because, uh, because of the comparison there. But, you know, I mean, I think, the, one, the important thing is, like, thankfully, for, you know, 99.9% of couples out there, uh, they selected their mate based on the things other than their sleeping preferences, right? So, like, presumably there's lots of things um, that, that they enjoy doing together that is uh, not around sleeping. But I also think they made a smart move in perhaps kind of sleeping in different bedrooms, which is totally reasonable so that you can protect uh, an individual's sleep. But for, for the, the, the wife in this uh, scenario, I think it would be worth kind of talking to your primary care physician about your sleep. And again, mentioning the, the interest in something like cognitive behavioral therapy as the first line treatment before they begin taking any kind of uh, sleep medications. But there's lots of things that can contribute to poor sleep. And so with this information, it's hard to know, but it certainly seems to warrant getting it checked out in some way. Listener in Iowa City asks, um, writes, I occasionally, when I'm under a lot of stress, have sleep paralysis. It's terrifying, uh, C writes. How do I prevent this? And this is, we've all had this to one degree or another. You're, you're awake, but you can't move your body. And um, it happens at sometimes more than others. Enlighten us, Eric. Yeah, yeah. So sleep paralysis is kind of a kind of one of these really interesting things that have happened to to many people and a lot of it has to, you know, the reason it happens is because when you're in REM sleep, you have muscle atonia, meaning you kind of lose control of your, you know, you you, you don't you can't move. You're you're in paralysis and that's really to ensure that you don't act out your dreams because they're really really active. Um but, you know, there are things that seem to put people at risk for additional sleep paralysis. Sleep is absolutely one of them. Um, getting insufficient amounts of sleep. So typically if you're getting, you know, fewer than six hours on average and you need, you know, at least seven or more, then, you know, that kind of puts you in the, the more higher risk category. Um, if you change your uh, sleep patterns regularly, like you, you don't keep the same sort of timing, um, that can put people at risk for this. 
And then, you know, uh, we know that exercise seems to be helpful uh, to to uh, kind of just regulate the sleep cycle a little bit. So all I mean, all of those things, kind of the things that are mentioned in this book, but also things you've probably heard a lot about and and how to regulate your sleep, uh, seem to help people uh, experience this less. But you know, it's certainly part of kind of the natural experience, and so knowing that that you're not abnormal in that way um, can can also be helpful. Uh, clearly, for this individual, kind of stress might be a trigger, and so thinking about ways to manage your stress better or, um, you know, any other preventative strategies in that way can be helpful. Five more minutes uh, left with you, uh, Eric Prather. Uh, Some more advice wanted by a listener. Uh, Would love to hear how to combat post-bad night brain fog. You've had a bad night. You've got, we've all been there. You've got to get through a a work day or whatever. What can you do to fight off that fog? And, you know, we know it's going to be a struggle through the day, but how can you minimize that fog? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, we absolutely all experience that. And it, it is challenging. I mean, there's not a, an easy fix to, to um, clear out those cobwebs. Um, I think, you know, first, first of all, the good news is that when you have a bad night of sleep, it means probably your next night is going to be better, right? Because your body will compensate. You kind of will dip into that deep sleep and your sleep will probably be more consolidated. So it's not something to be too distressed about going forward, but of course you have to get through the day. Um, you know, this is where, you know, caffeine can be helpful. Getting light exposure in the morning can be really helpful. There's, there's data to suggest that uh, early morning exercise, um, if you can do it, is, is helpful. Just anything to kind of um, get your mind going and getting kind of fresh air and, you know, staying hydrated is also another important piece to this to kind of improve yep. people's day-to-day well-being. And so well, all what of those about, things in combination. Yeah, good. Yeah, what about those little micro naps uh, that, and then I've learned in talking with people about them, I'm actually skilled at them. Other people say, I can't for the life of me during the day take anything. You know, if I fall asleep, I'm gone during the day. So, so some people have this ability. Do we know if that's a learned skill? Can you learn it? Or is it just something you either have or, or, or don't, this ability to take a quick a quick nap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people have um, kind of the inherent ability to do it and it's not clear why that is, but um, you know, I mean, I think it's something like, like anything, you know, your, your body can kind of get into the habit of doing things. I mean, the same is true just about napping generally. I mean, if you begin to take a nap on a daily basis, your body will begin to kind of crave that, right? Like you'd be like, oh, it's three o'clock. I should be napping. Your body's saying I should be napping. And the same is probably true about kind of the timing. I think it does require um, some training in the beginning with, with, with an alarm and, and ensuring that you do it around the same time of day each day. All of those things can be helpful. And then, you know, for combating kind of that fog, for some people, those naps can be really helpful. I will warn, though, if you had a really bad night of sleep um, and you were kind of shorted on that deep sleep, it's more likely that even on a short nap, you'll, you'll fall into that deep sleep. And so, you know, just, just caution yourself that you might have that sleep inertia that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Jennifer from West Des Moines writes, I've been dealing with sleep terrors for several years. I wake up screaming at the top of my lungs thinking someone is out to get me. It's terrifying and happens at least once a night. Was wondering if you know anything that could help me. Much appreciated. Jennifer, well, we're sorry to hear that. Eric, what can we do for oh. her? Sleep, sleep terrors are so challenging, and, um, and I'm really sorry to hear that. I mean, you know, that, like from a behavioral perspective, um, if, if the, the nightmares are the if – if they're nightmares and the content is, is similar each night, like some people have kind of recurring nightmares, um, there is a, a behavioral treatment um, that can be used, but 
you know, by and large, it's often kind of pharmacologic treatments that can be helpful to, to treat this. And so you'd want to talk to your, you know, neurologist, primary care physician first, and then neurologist to see if there's one that can be helpful um, to, uh, to kind of combat that. But, you know, for some people, it, it continues to be a challenge, um, you know, and sometimes there's a little bit more that is driving it. And so, you know, people sometimes benefit from kind of meeting with a therapist to try to try to disentangle that a little bit. I'm not saying that's the case here, but, um, you know, you would want to explore all avenues to try to um, remedy that situation. In the last minute or two, um, I wanted to go back to that vision of our pie chart or the universe. We don't know how large it is, how much we don't know about sleep in the brain. But I wonder for you, um, Eric, what are the some of the greatest unanswered questions about sleep science that could be answered in the next few years. I mean, in the last few decades, we've gone from, you know, thinking our brains were very inactive during sleep to uh, revealing our brain is actually very active. So what what will we discover? What would we love to discover in the next, you know, few years? Uh, yeah, the two things that immediately come to mind is, you know, one, we don't have a really great understanding of sleep need, right? So, you know, we have this recommendation that adults should get at least seven hours of sleep, but obviously we're on a, we're on kind of a cur you know, there's a distribution and there are some people that need really, really little amounts of sleep. And we're learning kind of the genetics of that. And, you know, perhaps that might tell us a little bit about one, what sleep does, because these people that have these kind of genetic mutations that are short sleepers seem to also be protected against some of the risks that go with um, not getting enough sleep. Um, but then the other thing is... Quickly, you know, quickly. What's going, oh, what's going on in the brain, and I think we, where technology will really help us get there. Okay, thank you so much for joining us live. Uh, Eric Prather, his book, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Eric, wish you all the best rest, and uh, thank you for sharing. I'm sure you've helped a number of people get better rest here in Iowa and in the Midwest. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, same to you. Sleep well. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. River to River Today, produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Sleep well, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.